is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker, a career and executive coach, and today I welcome Molly West Duffy to the show. Molly, welcome. Thanks, Caroline. I'm really excited to dive into a juicy conversation. We're going to talk about how people can have better emotional intelligence to improve their work life. And we're going to talk about your brilliant book, but I really want to go back and learn how you got interested in the topic of emotions at work. Absolutely. So it was a few years ago, I was working a very stressful job as a product manager for a startup. And I woke up one morning and I realized that the area right above my right eye was completely numb. And when the sensation didn't go away for a few days, I went to the doctor and the diagnosis was stress about my job. And I realized that all of the emotions that I had, I was holding in my shoulders and my neck. And I realized that there wasn't a place where I could talk about my emotions with others at work. And eventually I I moved on to another job, but I got very curious about how all those emotions, fear, anxiety, and frustration had built up. Um, And not just negative emotions, but positive emotions too. I just found that we didn't talk about them that much in a professional environment. Wow. So the stress manifested in such a way that you you felt it physically. Amazing. You know, yeah. your extraordinary co-author, Liz Foslien, uh, the two of you wrote No Hard Feelings, Emotions at Work, and How They Help Us Succeed. But I'd love to know, have you known Liz for a long time? And you wrote this gorgeous illustrated book. So it is a visual feast. And, and I'd love to learn how you and Liz connected. Thanks. Thanks, Caroline. Yeah. So we, our story began a few years ago. We were mutual friends and we bonded. We were both introverts. We both had an irreverent sense of humor and we were both working on creative side projects. So I was doing some writing and she was doing some illustrating. And we wrote an article together about what it feels like to be an introvert. And Liz does these incredible illustrations that visualize things that are very hard to verbalize like what it feels to be introverted or how it feels to have certain emotions. And then we got a book proposal and turned it into a book and and her illustrations do the same thing in this book about emotions. I would agree. And they're incredibly thought provoking. So what's the main message and, and who's the audience for the book? So it sounds funny, but we we wrote the book that we wanted to read. So I think the audience is anyone who goes to work and, and feels like they maybe could express themselves more or need help thinking about how to manage or express their emotions in a more healthy way. Um, the main message is that modern work requires an ability to effectively harness emotion, but many of us have never learned how to do this in our professional lives. And so, you know, as we start to recognize how important this is, we have to find that balance. You know, is it possible to be too soft? How much emotion can we express before we come across as unprofessional? Um, You know, what if our authentic self is overwhelmed and anxious? Should we be open about those feelings? And so a lot of times I think we think that suppression and avoidance are the way to do it, to sort of check our emotions at the door. But we actually argue that that's counterproductive. And by ignoring those feelings at work, we overlook um, the benefit that they can actually bring to work. 
Molly, you know, it's such an interesting time. Do, do you feel that there's a different expectation or maybe accountability at work for women versus men and how they bring their emotions to work, right? How they let them fly or how they suppress? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in the past decade or two decades, I would say that women were definitely seen as the more emotional of the two sexes and emotions were relegated to women. Um, I think we're in a time when we all need to bring more emotions to work, whether we're men or women. There are differences in how men and women express emotions and show up that uh, we've actually seen in research go into a biological level. So you know, stress seems to affect men and women's decision-making behavior differently. So men make more risky choices when they're stressed. Women tend to choose the low-risk option. And um, there's differences in, in men and women as leaders as well. So not trying to minimize the differences, but I think it's time to put to rest the idea that emotions are just for women at work. Well done. Well done. And and I agree with you. It's, it's not about um, minimizing it, but it's just about honoring the differences, right? Absolutely. So I am really fascinated by the premise that um, emotions affect our decision making, and I'm in full agreement. And as a career coach, often I tell people that are negotiating, you know, make sure you take heightened emotions out of the negotiation process. Be calm, be cool, be well researched. So, for example, talk about which emotions are relevant and irrelevant for decision making and, and how we can learn from that. Yes, absolutely. It's such an important point. Uh, this is one of the chapters that I found to be most fascinating when we did the research. So yes, there are some relevant emotions. And what we mean by relevant is that those emotions are tied directly to the choice that you're facing. So if you're, for example, let's say, Caroline, you're trying to decide whether or not to ask for a promotion. Uh -huh. And the idea of not asking for that promotion fills you with regret. That feeling of regret is relevant to that decision. And so that can actually be a really useful guide for picking, you know, should I ask for this, should I not? Irrelevant emotions are totally unrelated to the decision. So if you stub your toe in the morning or you have a fight with your partner and then you come into work and you're in a bad mood, um, you might then carry that frustration into making a decision and that frustration has nothing to do with that decision. So um, some examples that I can give. So the, uh, the emotion of regret, as I mentioned, this is really common. We oftentimes have regret. And so what, what the emotion of regret is trying to tell you is, um, you know, hey, this is, this is something that really matters to you. And, and so we shouldn't try and bury that. That's something that's like a good sign. This is, this really matters to you. Um, so, so the thing that we say is try picking the option that you think will minimize your regret. Another great example is envy. So when you envy someone, you realize that you want something that they have. And so envy actually reveals your values if you're honest with yourself. And a lot of times we're ashamed when we feel envious because, you know, it implies that the other person is better at something than we are. But if you can have the courage to say, like, you know, I'm really envious of Caroline because she's doing a lot better at this, then that can tell me, oh, that's something I want to work on. 
I love that I love reframe, you know, because we, we do talk about envy in a, in a negative light. And the truth is, it sheds light and clarity about our values. Thank you so much. That was an awesome, awesome way to reframe envy. So we're going to be right back after a quick break, Molly. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to learn more about. We want this podcast to serve you in all of your career and life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. So Molly, I'd love to hear more about psychological safety and why this is so incredibly important for teams. Perhaps you can first define what psychological safety is and how teams can increase that. Absolutely. So psychological safety is when teams feel respected by each other. It means that everyone in the group feels that they can suggest ideas, admit mistakes, and take risks without being embarrassed by any of the other members of the group. Reason this is so important is that Google did a study of what makes teams successful. And they studied nearly 200 teams to figure out why some teams succeed and why some teams fail. And surprisingly, what didn't matter was how long team members have been on the team, their seniority, individual performance. The best teams were teams whose members respected each other's ideas. Um, And so we talk a lot about how you can create an environment of psychological safety on a team in the book. I think that's so important, uh, building that trust and that safe space and and also the, the space where you can be authentic and honor what you value and who you really are. Thank you so much for for sharing your insight about that. You know, it's also interesting when we think about feedback, because I sense as a coach that often this heightens our emotions. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, sometimes the receiver just isn't really emotionally available. And sometimes the person that is extending the feedback, they want to be constructive, but it's just wrapped in emotion. So help us unpack that. Absolutely. Feedback is one of the biggest questions that we get um, because a lot of times we go very quickly into that defensive emotional sense when we know that we're about to give feedback. And so if you're giving someone feedback, you want to try and give them feedback that makes them feel good or at least less bad, you know, not defensive um, about receiving that feedback. And there's a couple of steps that I can share. So the first is to try and be specific. So really, Um, try and hone in on this is a good thing you did. This is something you could improve. Vague criticism is really useless and it helps and it makes a receiver fall down the, Oh, I did a bad thing. Therefore I am bad rabbit hole. So here's an example. I could say to you, Caroline, your email to me could have been better. Or I could say to you, Hey, Caroline, the second sentence in your email restated the first. And so I I don't think you need that. And I think you can delete it. So the first way that I said that was ambiguous. 
you have no idea where to go with that. The second way points, points to a really specific issue, which is harder to take personally, and then it gives you a clear sense of, of way to go. So that's the first thing is be more specific. Second thing is to, instead of simply criticizing, suggesting a different way of doing things and explain how it's going to benefit the person. And we call this bridging the gap. So this is say. I'm going to identify where you want the other person to be and then give them a clear piece of advice on how to get there. So you could say something like, I've noticed that you shut people down in discussions. If your goal is to be a great manager of people, people want to have to work for you. So here's some tips on how you can get there. I would recommend that you stop interrupting your colleagues. If someone hasn't said anything, you can invite them into the conversation. I'm so grateful for the specificity. I think that is a game changer. Let me ask your take. Did you and Liz find or do you believe that if you approach it with, I'm sharing this information because I care about you and I want you to improve as a professional. I want to be part of your developmental process. Is that prelude uh, softening things or does that make people understand you're doing this from a place of, I really care about how you perform? Yes, it absolutely makes people understand that you're caring. I don't think it softens it at all. I think it's the prelude that then can have you actually share feedback that is direct and possibly critical and specific and helps it land versus if you don't have that prelude, they may just be in such a defensive place that they're not going to hear it at all. You know what I think is so interesting, just human nature in general, we always tend to mind read, you know, we think we know, I think I know what you're thinking, Molly, and the truth is I just don't unless you or I have the courage to say, let's talk about this together. So thank you for that. Absolutely. So let's talk about a culture of belonging. You know, I am fascinated by the statistics that, that Gallup shares every year about how many Americans are disengaged in the workforce. The international numbers are not much better, and it hovers around 70%. And a culture of, culture of belonging certainly helps people feel engaged. So how do we get there? Absolutely. So first, I just want to define what we mean when we say belonging, um, because it's oftentimes used in conjunction with talking about diversity and inclusion. And so this is our definition, and I, I happen to love it. Diversity is having a seat at the table. Inclusion is having a voice and belonging is having that voice heard. Very nice. Yeah, and it's super powerful. And so absolutely, like you said, I think belonging really helps with engagement and helps reduce turnover. Um, So one of the most important ways that you can increase belonging is thinking about transition moments. So usually that's an employee's first day in the job onboarding, because those moments are particularly anxiety inducing. We all know what it feels like to go to work on the first day and not know if you're going to fit in. And so that there are opportunities there to create a sense of belonging. So a couple of examples One that we do where I work at IDEO is we have something called an interview, which is a combination of the word enter and the word interview. Mm. And so everyone who interviewed the new hire writes down why they're really excited for that individual to join and what skills they bring to the team. And these then are collected and written on this fold out card that says, dear blank or dear Caroline, 
you know, we think you're kind of a big deal and here's why. And what that does is it helps them know that they don't have what we call the like Harvard syndrome, which is like, you know, you're admitted to Harvard and you're looking around and you're like, do I really belong here? Am I smart enough? All these other people are smarter than I am. And the reason that that's so important, Caroline, is that if we have any of our mind space that's going towards, do I fit in here? Do I belong? That's important mind space that could be used for actually problem solving on the job. So if I'm spending 50% of my time thinking like, oh God, what does this person think of me? Was I supposed to be hired here? I actually can't be giving my full attention to the task or the problem at hand. What a great practical uh, tactic and strategy to help combat imposter syndrome right off the bat. And as you said, allow that mental space and that mental energy to be directed toward other things. Awesome. Love that. Love that. Okay. One of my favorite parts of the book is when you talk about how leaders should be selectively vulnerable. So tell the audience what that means. Absolutely. So we talk about how leaders actually have a little bit harder job than others uh, because they are looked at way more. So we, we look at our leaders as guides, as an example for how much emotion should we show, how much should we not show. And so they, they have to really walk the talk. And so vulnerability matters because um, research shows that our brains respond more positively to, to empathetic and vulnerable bosses. Vulnerable and empathetic bosses, we feel a personal connection with them, so we perform better, we're, we, we connect with them more. However, when you are too vulnerable as a leader, you get into what we call workplace TMI. <laughs> We've all had bosses who, you know, it's like, okay, that was too much. I didn't need to know that. And when you share too much, you can actually diminish how much people respect you. And, and you, then you, people start to question your ability to do your job. So this line between sharing, which builds trust, and oversharing, which destroys it, we call being selectively vulnerable. And the best leaders have that capacity. So what about humility? Does that, is that part of that criteria or is that a whole separate thing? I absolutely think that's a part of it. And I think, um, the humility of saying, you know, I don't know everything connects right into vulnerability. So having the ability to name it and say, yep, I don't know what's going to happen. So let me give you an example. We, um, have a situation in our book where we talk about, um, there's somebody who is a entrepreneur and he just raised a round of, of money for his startup, but he's not sure it's going to be all the money that he needs. And he's worried about running out of money. And so he's, he's terrified. So one way that he could do this would be to handle this would be to go to his employees and say, I'm terrified. And that's certainly being humble and and vulnerable, but that's not going to be super helpful to his reports. A better way would be to walk in and say, you know, I'm scared just like you are, but I still really believe in you, in our product and in our mission. And here's the steps that I think we need to take in the next couple of weeks to move forward. Excellent example. Thank you for that. Molly, you and Liz have several assessments on your website, and I'd love to hear more about those so our audience knows how to access that. And then we're going to talk about how to buy the book. 
Absolutely. So you can find our assessments at Liz and Molly, and it's Molly with an IE dot com slash assessments. And there's personal assessments that you can take. One of my favorites is your emotional tendency. So you can figure out, do you are you an over a motor or an under a motor to figure out how you express emotion? There's also assessments for your team on psychological safety, which we talked about, and for your organization on the sense of belonging, which we talked about. Awesome. Molly, what a joy to have you on the show. I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and expertise and your incredible book co-authored by Liz Foslien. It's called No Hard Feelings, Emotions at Work and How They Help Us Succeed. And of course, it's available on Amazon and all major book retailers. And I highly recommend that our global listening audience check it out. Molly, thank you so much. Thanks, Caroline. It was a joy to be here. And hey, if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud and even better, leave us a review. And let me tell you why the reviews matter. It changes the algorithm and helps people find us online. So thank you so much for considering that. And let us know what issues you would like for us to discuss on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And I always want to thank my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McEnany. Executive Producer. I'm grateful for your extraordinary work, ladies. You make this show awesome for our audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.